Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. morning again. Um, first, I, I guess we should all acknowledge that this place is so beautiful. Uh, not many uh, places where you can uh, sit like this with such nice people and then go put your feet in the water at the break. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty wonderful. Um, Uh, the Buddha uh, was a person, a historical person, um, and uh, he had a teaching career of 50 years. Uh, he had an experience uh, uh, in his early 30s as a young man, um, and uh, maybe as the weekend goes on I can talk about that a little bit, uh, that we unfortunately call enlightenment, which I will critique as the weekend goes on. And, uh, and then um, he wasn't sure afterwards what he should do about it. He felt like he had a really deep shift in how he perceived his own life. And um, then thought that maybe he should just keep his mouth shut because anything he said would never be able to accurately uh, describe what his experience was. But eventually he was convinced uh, to, um, to share his experience and then went on to teach for 50 years. And the interesting thing about anybody who teaches for 50 years is when you become a good teacher, you're always refining what you're teaching based on the context and the audience and the group. So the Buddha taught many, many different things uh, over that 50 years. And after he died, um, the, his teachings were remembered by his close students, particularly he had a sidekick the whole time named Ananda. And uh, the teachings were slowly um, uh, brought together and created what's called the Pali Canon. Uh, in fact, a language was developed after the Buddha's death uh, just to describe the teachings because the language of religion at the time was Sanskrit which mostly was the Brahmin classes uh, and all men. So women didn't know Sanskrit. Uh, in ancient India, women were actually illiterate. And um, this would have been, we're talking around 400 BC. So the Buddha felt it was really important that whenever his teachings were uh, described, that they were described in whatever the common language was, so that it would never become uh, an upper class practice, that it was for everybody. 
So his teachings were put together in a Sanskrit that had less rules, which is called Pali. And so there's a canon called the Pali Canon, which is 5,000 pages, which is all online. Um, and um, so we can go back to that canon and learn about how the Buddha taught. And what's interesting for me about that is the deeper you go in the canon, the further away you get from Buddhism. The further away you get from what's become the religion of Buddhism, and the closer you get to the core teachings of what the Buddha actually taught. And for me personally, I've been very inspired by a Christian a theological work that's tried to historicize, is that a word? The Jesus. And, 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 and retell the story of Jesus as a person in a particular historical context, which takes Jesus off the pedestal and makes him a human being, which actually makes the teachings much more relevant, I think, for all of us. So that's why, as a lot of meditation practices become really uh, popular in our culture, um, and most people are reading Western people who've studied with Western people who've studied with Western people, I like to pull out you know, some of these teachings and say, actually, these historical teachings are really, really interesting. And so the one that I've chosen for this weekend is uh, an offering that the Buddha gave uh, in his uh, mid-80s. Um, he's a couple months away from dying. He knows he's getting ill. Um, but he doesn't know he's going to die. And um, he meets with a very small group of students and he uh, offers them a teaching that has to do with qualities of mind that lead to awakening. Qualities of mind that need to be balanced and that need to be cultivated. And it's also interesting to notice that as the Buddha is nearing old age, he steers away from any kind of teachings that have anything to do with cosmology. So he doesn't talk about belief systems, uh, he doesn't talk about anything that one should believe in, but rather he talks about two things again and again and again, the quality of one's mind and one's conduct, and how those things are interconnected, which is I think a interesting footnote. Um, so another interesting thing is that, you know, I, I haven't given you the whole teaching here, but just before the Buddha offers the seven factors of awakening, which is what we're going to explore, he offers a teaching that precedes it, which is a very famous teaching where he tells the community that the most important factor for living a spiritual life is friendship. The story is that Ananda, his right-hand man, uh, says to him, um, is friendship uh, half of spiritual life? And the Buddha says, no, Ananda, uh, friendship is the whole of spiritual life. And I really love, I really love this teaching. So uh, that's the context. 80s, nearing the end of his life, teaching communities for 50 years, and now he's going to offer some teachings 
with the background that he's also just told the community that the most important thing is actually friendship. Which is good to hear, because a lot of people who get into these practices, they think the most important thing is meditation. And I think that's because we're such an anti-meditative culture <laughs> that we like to make meditation the most important thing. Um, but the Buddha says actually our, our, the quality of our friendships is the most important thing. So um, the first thing he begins with here is um, mindfulness practice. Uh, so mindfulness is the foundation, and then the other six factors arrive out, arise out of mindfulness. So this is not so much a list, but qualities that arise out of mindfulness practices. So once mindfulness is established, uh, we then cultivate investigation. So the ability to use the calmness of our mind to investigate more deeply uh, the nature of reality, the nature of life, how life really happens. The third one is virya, which is usually translated as energy. Sometimes I like to also translate it as enthusiasm. The fourth is joy or delight. The fifth is tranquility. The sixth factor is concentration. And the seventh, um, which we're going to spend a lot of time on tomorrow, is equanimity. So, um, most of us uh, are called to practice because we get thrown around a lot uh, in our life from things inside us and situations that happen outside us. And so we need to cultivate uh, some kind of peace that's not so much based on external conditions. Uh, because of impermanence, because of change, uh, life can get really hard sometimes. And none of us, no matter what your practices, can be immune to change. It's not possible. You see it sometimes, right? Uh, there's this thing called aging. You heard about this? Yeah. And uh, I think if the cultural background, which is in denial of aging, um, is what you've internalized, consciously or unconsciously, when you age, you'll fight it. It's going to be hard to be embodied or embedded in your experience of aging because uh, that's not what you see around you. Your body doesn't work the same way it did. There are more aches and pains. And when you look in the mirror, it's horrifying. <laughs> and then you get angry. Uh, not only do you get angry uh, consciously because you can't do the things that you wanted to do, but also uh, you get angry because your life's not turning out how you imagined. Our bodies show this all the time. But then also, um, um, we get angry because um, we don't get perceived as aging people. Uh, in a way that uh, uh, values our experience or our esteem. So if you're used to looking a certain way, people look at you that way. But then when you age, maybe they don't look at you the same way anymore. 
So uh, there's an inner dignity we need to find that doesn't have to do with how we're being perceived. You see? And so part of meditative practice is being able to touch something that's stable and internal. Um, and it also uh, helps us um, uh, manage the times where uh, things get really difficult. So these are some of the reasons why we need a mindfulness practice. And uh, lastly, um, we don't have to hold on to things the way we've always held on to them. And like we were talking earlier about breathing, uh, there's a way of letting go of experience that's not dissociating from experience. It's a letting go that actually allows life to touch you more deeply. And this is what we're practicing. So the most important thing about mindfulness practice is that we're not so focused on what's arising in our experience, but rather we're more focused on the subjective experience of being aware. Do you hear that difference? So when different content is coming up in your awareness, we're not so focused on what that content is, but more the quality of how you're aware the subjective experience of being aware, which I like to call your attitude. It's our attitude. So is your attitude bitter? Is your attitude uh, um, impatient? Is the attitude peaceful? Um, Are you compassionate? Or are you distorting what's showing up in some way? And as you sit, and your mind gets calmer, and your body settles, your nervous system settles, um, you can look more clearly at your attitude. There's an interesting story about a psychiatrist from New York uh, named Mark Epstein. I don't know if any of you have read his books. For those of you who are taking the clinician's course, you're going to be reading his books. Um, And he tells a great story in one of his books about how uh, every year he goes on a meditation retreat and he keeps a little diary and at the end of the retreat, he writes down in the diary like something important that he noticed during the retreat. And he tells a story after many years one day opening up the diary and reading it from start to finish and seeing that every single retreat, it was exactly the same insight <laughs> that he had again and again and again. And the insight he had is that, as he describes it, that the way you respond to experience is more important than what the experience actually is. In other words, what comes up is less important than how we're relating to what comes up. But most of the time, we're so glued to what's coming up that we don't have any distance from it, and we're caught. Can you see that when you're sitting? Can you see that kind of way you just get glued to your thoughts, and there's no distance there at all. And then you believe that that's really what's happening. And then you come back to your breath, and then turns out that was made of nothing. So, um, mindfulness is the practice of keeping your body and your attention open to what's happening, so your attention doesn't keep going to the pleasure of habit, doesn't keep going into the repetitive loops 
that always happen. And this is the interesting thing about habits, is that even if they're not good for us, just because we know them really well, they're comfortable. So you know it's not good, but you keep doing it. You know that that one line of thinking is just going to make you feel bad, but it's so seductive because it's comfortable. You know it. You don't want to let go of it. And so mindfulness is about balancing our attention so that we're not caught in the regrets from our past and we're not caught up in planning our future. And some of you might notice phases where your mind's mostly going into the future. How many of you were in future this morning? <laughs> and how many of you were in the past? <laughs> you know, it's interesting to notice that. And one other thing that I want to just you know, point out is that nowadays there's a lot of talk about the present moment. You know? But mindfulness is not so much about being in the present moment. It's one way of saying it. But mindfulness is about being open to what's actually happening. Because there is no real present moment. That's another idea. Right? You can't find the present moment, and as soon as you name it, it's gone. So rather than saying, oh, I have to be really, really present right here, which can make us a little bit uptight, it's more like we relax so there's an openness to life rather than a kind of like trying to get into a certain state, which can be exhausting. Um, so you sit, you feel your breathing, and we open to sounds. And then what happens is, even if you don't have the best technique, what happens is you end up bumping into spaciousness. You'll notice this. Did anybody notice this? You're thinking, thinking, it's all, oh my God, I'm so crazy. How am I going to get through today, you know? And then you just bump into a kind of spaciousness. And then the mind comes in and goes, whoa, this is so spacious. This is really cool. I hope this goes on all day. And then you kill it. <laughs> um, but in that spaciousness, you see that awareness is very, very stable and very calm. And it's not you, and it's not not you. We can't even say what it is, exactly. But there's a kind of stable awareing of what's happening in experience. And it doesn't seem to have anything to do with us. So it's like, as our thinking quiets down, we can pay more attention to how stable awareness is. And eventually this is going to become the factor of equanimity. That we and talked how long about. does that take? <laughs> it's not really, it's only a matter of taking if you think that it's a state that's going to be there forever. But what I'm saying is, like, even this morning, you bumped into it. So, how long does it take coming back to your breath? How long does that take? It's like that. It's a shift of attitude. So, it's instant. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about mindfulness is that um, the more you bump into this kind of spaciousness that happens, uh, the more it changes your conduct in your life. The most important thing about meditative practice is your conduct. It's the most important thing. 
So um, it's hard to have beautiful conduct in our lives if there's no spaciousness, because then we're just reactive people. Do you know people like this? Yeah. And you make poor decisions. I mean, we're all going to make poor decisions. All the time we're going to make poor decisions. But when we have more spaciousness, um, we're not as reactive. So we can have a little more wisdom in our decision-making, a little more sensitivity and empathy. And if you make a stupid decision, which you're going to do, I mean, we're all going to do this, you say something not quite the right way, um, you can recover really easy. Just go, oh, okay. Or maybe you apologize and say, you know, when I said that, I was kind of bitter. And, and, and I'm sorry. And, you can rec and it's not like a big drama where you become quite obsessed with yourself. So, the first phase of mindfulness is um, opening up your ears so that um, they're like microphones. Did that metaphor make sense for you? Mm -hmm. So microphones don't go after sounds. They just receive sound. And there's many layers to this. Today, all we're working with really is just noticing sounds. And then the nice thing about this is that um, sometimes people who have a lot of anxiety, it's hard for them to first focus on their breathing because it makes them kind of anxious. So when you first start meditating, if you teach them to meditate on sound, it, it appears like the sound's out there and it's not as internal. Now, if you keep staying with sound, you might ask yourself, where's the sound happening? Is it out there? Or, or is the listening happening in here? And you'll start to see that um, the whole construct of inside and outside is also a story you're telling. So that's also something interesting to explore. And then when your body is receptive, you can also feel the breath that way. So in the same way that sounds are just coming to you, the breath is just coming to the body, and there's not as much um, adding on that happens. If people start focusing on their breathing and they start getting kind of uptight, there's two things you can do. One is um, you can pay more attention to sound so you're not as constricted around your breathing. And the other practice that I really like that forms the first foundation of mindfulness is um, when you inhale, you say silently to yourself, peace in. And when you exhale, you silently say to yourself, peace out. Can you imagine this? So as you inhale, peace in. And as you exhale, peace out. And you do this for the first five minutes of sitting. So you open up your ears, set up your posture, and then you just calm the whole system. I just peace in and peace out. And you usually only have to do it for five minutes or less. And it just calms things down. Calms things down. So, if you don't calm things down, then one of the things you'll notice is that everything is about you. <laughs> and when everything's about me, 
my experience of myself and my experience of others and my experience of life is so narrow, it's so confined. So one of the goals of meditative practice is to uh, undo this constricted way of perceiving, which is with me at the middle of everything. You don't have to try and connect with something bigger. You don't have to try and get over yourself. Or and you don't have to try and get rid of yourself. These are all you know, going to lead to more tension. All you have to do is just notice your reactivity and come back to your breathing and your body. And little by little, you'll feel your habits uh, settling. And also, uh, you don't end up uh, finding peace, even though everybody wants to be peaceful. All you end up discovering is spaciousness. And the spaciousness is the most important thing. The most important thing is that we develop this ability to experience what's arising with lots of space around it. And in a way, isn't that what a symptom is? Isn't a symptom something that's showing up that doesn't have any space around it. And a good doctor is somebody who can recognize this and figure out how to reset your body so that there's more spaciousness in your mind, in your digestion, in your elbow joint. Wherever there's an injury, we're trying to find spaciousness. But, you know, when we're highly reactive or addicted to something, there's no spaciousness. We feel this, we drink this. We feel this, we eat this. There's no space at all. So this is the first factor of awakening, the Buddha is saying that um, the most important thing is that we begin with mindfulness. It's like the gem that you use to see experience. And what I find really interesting about that is that the practice doesn't begin with a creation story or a story about what's going to happen when you die or a story about connecting with a higher power or a story about your past lives it begins with perception. How are you perceiving experience right now? And mindfulness is a practice that you undertake. It's an injunction to let go of your habitual ways of perceiving. And it begins with your posture. And for most people, the first thing that they notice when they start sitting is restlessness. Anybody? You just, do you say that's me? No. <laughs> <laughs> so what, restlessness is like being in a maze and not seeing it. And mindfulness is like having a bird's eye view of the maze. You can see the restlessness, but you don't have to go with the restlessness. You're breathing and you're noticing restlessness. Does anybody feel this? 
And then you can see that um, thoughts um, really trigger the restlessness. Right? In the restlessness, there's a lot of overthinking. So there's a few really practical things you can do. One is more exercise. More exercise. But some people, that's the only tool they have. So then, if you're restless and the only thing you go to is exercise, then uh, you're going to have more and more restlessness. And restless people always say the same thing about meditation. When they come on a retreat like this, they'll say, um, this is really great, it's nice to sit still, but running is my meditation. Or, um, uh, I don't know, what do you do here? Rowing is my meditation, or music is my meditation. And I always say to them, if you're at the office and somebody says something to you and you're really triggered in a meeting, you can't just go running. You can't just go put on music. You can't just go rowing. You need to be able to respond right there with equanimity. So in a way, um, when you sit, you're establishing the ability to sit with whatever's showing up. We can be mindful of any mental state, any mental state. So, if you're getting enough exercise, if you're eating well, if you're sleeping enough, um, then the only thing left to do is to sit still and start working with the restlessness. And you know what? The people who suffer the most from restlessness are not the restless people. It's everybody around them. Because uh, when you're really restless, it's hard to actually tune in to other people's needs. Because you're really just in your experience. So, um, another trick for uh, working with um, different mental states when you're sitting is to keep your soft palate released. Does everybody know where their soft palate is? Your uvula. So if you take your tongue and you press into the roof of your mouth, you feel how it's very hard? But if you go back and up, or how it's soft? So we want to keep our soft palate released. And the best way to do that is to just smile a little bit. Not like a fake smile, but just a soft, hmm, contemplative smile. And then you'll feel like your soft palate releases and the roof of your mouth opens. Can everybody feel that? It's just like you're about to smell something. So, um, when the soft palate releases, and I love the term palate because it reminds me of an artist's palate, right? When, when somebody has, when someone has, has, has um, clear seeing, we often say about them, they have a really good palate. If they're a painter or they're a chef, we'll say, oh, they have a great palate. And what that really means is they're very good at finding the right ratio of ingredients or colors or compositions. And so in a way, this is connected to the, our physiology because when you release your soft palate, you release your point of view. So if you look at the lake 
and you really look at the lake, your soft palate will release. This expression <laughs> is a release of your soft palate. So the physiology of aesthetic experience begins with this release of the soft palate. So in our mindfulness posture, as we're paying attention to our breathing and sound, we're keeping the soft palate released, which helps keep our mind from clinging to whatever's showing up. And is really, really good for working with restlessness, really good for working with anxiety, is keeping the soft palate released. Does that make sense? Can everybody feel that a little bit? Um, <clears throat> when your soft palate releases, uh, your suboccipitals, do you know these muscles back here? They're actually the back of your eyes, are your suboccipitals. They're right here. Um, when your soft palate releases, the suboccipitals release. And then your eyes get really soft. Can everybody feel that? So you know when you're calm, your eyes get really quiet. And these muscles here, these nerves actually, don't fire as intensely as they do as when you're really like this all the time. Um, and that's the deep practice of not holding on, not clinging. And then in that calmer space where you're not consumed by thinking, then you can investigate more clearly what's actually going on in your experience. So the first thing we need to do is drop all our ideas about what's happening right now. Really drop them. Let that calm space appear, that spaciousness appear, and then in that space, you can look more clearly. So a lot of people forget this about meditation. They think, oh, meditation is just about getting calm or getting peace. But actually, in that space of calmness, then we investigate. And this afternoon, I'm going to talk more about what we investigate. But one of the things we investigate is, is this permanent? So you have a lot of pain. When you get calm, you might say, is this permanent? Or you might say, what is this? Or you might say, who's this happening to? Oh, it's happening to me. Well, what is this? There's a Korean practice where all the students practice for decades. The whole practice is you're constantly during the day asking, what is this? Can you imagine that? Just all day, following your breathing, and you just say, you know, what is this? What is this? And this creates a much more innocent mind, more interested. What is this? What is this? Or maybe you have some emotion that arises a lot, and instead of going, oh, this is anxiety, I better call my therapist, <laughs> you can just go, you can release your palate and go, what is this? And investigate it, what is this? What is this? So this helps us not hold on. And the third factor is energy. 
is in order to do this, we need balanced energy. If you have way, way too much energy, then the practice is calmness. And if you're sleepy, the practice is being awake and not identifying Louisa with a sleepiness. And so these are the first three factors that the Buddha is describing as qualities that need to be balanced. So there's the mindfulness that sets up the foundation, and then there's these two qualities that need to be in balance. Investigation and enthusiasm, being interested. So this is really good for those of you who have a longer term meditation practice, I know some of you do, is sometimes our practice gets into a bit of a rut and we find we're, we're meditative, we're contemplative, but it's a bit dull. There's no real energy there. There's no real alertness. So you always want to feel in your practice this kind of vitality. So that's why this model is sort of helpful. Or we're really in the kind of like calm place, but uh, there's no investigation happening. We're not really looking clearly at some of our assumptions that affect what we're looking at. So this is where the investigation factor is really important. So, I want to add one more piece to this. How's your attention span? Is it, is it okay? Can we add one more, mm-hmm. one more piece? Um, <clears throat> so, one of the interesting things about investigation is uh, from a different teaching, uh, also in this tradition, of uh, how the Buddha talked about suffering, or what the, the word in, in uh, Sanskrit is dukkha which if you've heard any of my podcasts or have been on retreat with me, I'm talking about all the time, uh, dukkha. And uh, the Buddha talked about uh, three kinds of suffering. Uh, the first kind he called a dukkha dukkha, which is the suffering of suffering, which is the suffering of not being able to suffer. So this is a really important thing to investigate is when we have experience of suffering in our lives that are built into being alive, there is a deep suffering that comes from not being able to be with your suffering. Or a suffering that comes from not being able to be with other people's suffering. Does everybody have this experience? That some suffering arises in our life and it's just unbearable. We can't be with it. And when you can't bear your suffering, the tendency is to then project it onto other people. It's like you're saying to someone else, here, you hold this. And this is the beginning of um, violence. It's saying, this grief, I can't feel this grief, you hold it. And we do this pretty unconsciously. Anybody who's in a long-term relationship knows this, I hope, very, very well, is this mechanism of projection. So the first uh, thing we're looking at, um, and this is like, I think, when there's some calmness and we can look really closely at our experience, is to see how much suffering is created when we can't be with our suffering. 
which I think is a really beautiful way of thinking about addiction. Right? I mean, what is addiction? Part of addiction is not being able to be with our suffering. And also, another thing we know about addiction is one of the f primary factors that fuels addiction is being isolated. Right? Is being isolated. So, um, when you're alone, it's very, very hard to work with addictive patterns. So, part of being able to open to suffering is actually to not do it alone. To open to your suffering with other people. Because when you are with other people's suffering, it helps you be with your own suffering. Because it's not as personal, you see. In what way? Somebody is suffering that you love, so over time it wears on. Yeah, so how to be with someone else's suffering. Well, the thing that wrecks us when other people are suffering is our reactivity to their suffering. So somebody near us is suffering, it's human to suffer with them, to feel their suffering. But the problem is, is most of the time when other people near us are suffering, we're just scrambling to get them out of their suffering. And usually that exhausts us and frustrates them. Because when someone's always trying to help you, they get really annoying. <laughs> and it's usually mostly about them. And also, when you're always trying to help other people you tend to perceive them as needing help. And there's some pity mixed up with that. And there's also some healing fantasies mixed up with that. So part of being with other people's suffering is actually being able to really meet them without having to make it go away. And part of that is related to our own, not part of it, most of that is our ability to be with our own suffering. If you can't be with your own pain, it's really hard to be with other people's pain. I think we talked about this last night a little bit. So this is one of the benefits of this practice. So, um, the first kind of suffering, the Buddha says, is dukkha dukkha, the suffering of not being able to be with suffering. The second thing we can investigate around this experience is what he calls uh, the suffering of change that as human beings we're always trying to make things linear we're always trying to make things more permanent with our stories right oh i'm in this relationship we're married it's going to be like this forever and then we're going to die beautiful well things change people change and the people who we marry are not the people who we married after a few months even so, there's a lot of suffering if we can't be in relationship to change. And you can say this even about businesses. You know, you run a business. Some of you run a business. And if your business is not flexible and versatile, then it cracks. It doesn't work. Or your body. Maybe you're going to the gym, or you're doing some special yoga, 
class where you're going to do the best backbends ever, well, guess what? Your body's aging, and backbends are the first thing that dissolve. Well, arm balances are the first thing that go, then backbends. So to watch where we're trying to improve ourselves in a way where we really believe in what it's going to look like. And there's a lot of suffering in not being open to fluidity. And the third um, uh, factor that we can investigate is called a dukkha sangskara, which is um, the suffering of a conditioned existence. That um, all existence is conditioned. Everything is conditioned. This moment is conditioned by previous moments. Your perception is conditioned by your eyes, by your ears, by the habits of your mind, by your body. And there's a lot of genetic weight in our perception, isn't there? A lot of memory, a lot of habit. So the third kind of suffering is not being able to see how everything that arises, arises in conditions. And one way that this is talked about a lot is to see whatever's arising as arising out of causes and conditions. Causes and conditions. Most of the time we think most of what arises in our mind is arising from inside me. But everything is arising in causes and conditions. And part of our practice is start to see that more and more clearly. More and more clearly. How everything arises in causes and conditions. And I like to use the example of um, anger. Right? Nobody is an angry person. Nobody. In certain conditions, with certain causes present, somebody's an angry person. Someone's angry. But in, as the causes and conditions change, so does the anger. Nobody's schizophrenic. In certain causes and conditions, the symptoms of schizophrenia are present. And when some of those causes and conditions are not there, schizophrenia is not there. Nobody's schizophrenic all the time. Nobody's depressed all the time. Nobody's anger, angry all the time. I lived with someone... Uh, a really good friend of mine for a couple years who's a very talented artist and so ungrounded. And she used to lose her wallet all the time. And one day I was so frustrated. She lost her wallet and her keys again. And I said, you always lose your wallet. And she said, if I always lost my wallet, I would never lose my wallet. So none of us are one thing all the time. We're causes and conditions that are changing, which we're going to explore more as we delve deeper. So um, we've covered the first three. Mindfulness, investigation, and um, <clears throat> having balanced energy. Balanced energy. And so these are qualities of mind. You should memorize this. These are qualities of the mind that we're trying to both cultivate and balance, and balance. So I like to think of it as 
the first one, mindfulness, is just the foundation. The, the Buddha calls it the ground. And then the other six are qualities that we're trying to keep in balance and cultivate. So uh, are there any questions or comments? And then we're going to practice this through lunch. Any questions or comments? Anything I've said that is sticking or you resonate I, or don't I think resonate? With myself, I've, I always thought mindfulness was getting rid of, uh, getting rid of thoughts, letting go, like you said. Yeah. And I've been practicing that. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, something blows up. Mm -hmm. Whether mm -hmm. it's, I feel like it's rage, it's anger, this intense emotion. Yeah. So indirectly, I've been bottling it up, mm -hmm. and it's having the opposite effect. Uh huh. And like yeah. what you had said is rather than do that, you're yeah. embracing those thoughts, uh -huh. you're examining them and yeah. figuring out like, what, what is this? What yeah. is this? So yeah. almost doing the opposite. So. Uh-huh. And that's where I thought, I know this whole practice is practice. Mm -hmm. We never completely get there. Yeah. And that's where I thought, that's my problem. I'm just not there yet. Yeah. But I'm almost approaching it the wrong way. Yeah, so you're approaching with this ideal that, oh, I should be feeling peaceful, and yeah. all the thoughts, they should just go away. Yeah, just get rid of them. Yeah. Let it go. Yeah. And it, they're not, obviously, they're not gone. Yeah. So it takes thoughts and turns them into an enemy, mm -hmm. which is not really fair to thoughts. Yeah. So one of the things you can do is to see that thoughts are arising in certain causes and conditions. Mm -hmm. And that if there are some causes and conditions, like you're a little tired... You're not eating right. Mm -hmm. uh, you have too many emails in your inbox. Mm -hmm. And uh, it hasn't been sunny for three months. Has anybody had any of these experiences mm -hmm. at the same time? <laughs> um, then um, you're going to be more reactive. Mm -hmm. right? um, or, for example, you know, I don't really get angry very often. But there's this one person in my life that... Everything they say to me triggers mm -hmm. me. I've known them a long time. And uh, they always think I'm an angry person. Mm -hmm. And I always think, yeah, that's totally fair. Whenever I'm with you, I'm like triggered. Um, Is it your mother by any chance? No, but close. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think this is just an important way of seeing how, okay, thoughts in certain conditions, I get really ruminative. Mm -hmm. And I can't get any space from them. Mm -hmm. Or in certain conditions, I'm really angry. You know? mm -hmm. So then we can bring mindfulness to those mental states. But you're suggesting we need to examine why do we feel angry? Like, let's First, we have to get calm. First, we have to calm down and say, okay, there's anger here. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to act it out, mm -hmm. but I'm going to feel this anger. Yeah, and that's part of like allowing yourself to suffer. Like, totally. Like, dukkha, dukkha. Totally. Yeah. That's dukkha dukkha. And that's what I think I've been um, denying myself. Right. Because I think that's selfish. It's not all about me. Let it go. Yeah. And in doing so, it, it's, not, it's not working. So. Yeah. So I have a lot of people who come and they practice and they're like, I'm here because I just want to be peaceful. <laughs> And I think to myself, great, good luck. <laughs> because it's not, that, it's not that it doesn't make you peaceful. It's that what, what, what the practice is doing is it's trying to teach us how to be free in whatever mental state we're in. 
right? So if there's peace, great, don't hold on to it. If there's anger, it's okay, take care of it, right? And that's how we're working with the states, as opposed to this idea that bliss is the goal and we should always feel bliss. And then there's going to be a lot of repression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because then you don't know how to work with these other mental yeah. states. Yeah. So yeah. thank you I for sharing that. Yeah. This may be a silly example, but I was yeah. neighbored last night and decided he would blow all his leaves and dirt and stuff in our driveway. It was amazing how crazy that made me. I yeah. didn't want to say anything to him, but I was just pissed off for hours about yeah. this. And, you know, the squirrel wheels yeah. were going. And yeah. You know, yes, I acknowledge the anger. Yes, I know why I'm angry. Yeah. But how do it's, how do you make it? Like this is it's a silly example, but it was, yeah. surprised me how annoyed I was at this and how far yeah. my brain went with it. Yeah. You know? So how is it possible for you to feel that anger and and not act it out or in? Yeah, I was acting and, it in. Like there's no way I was gonna, you know, come out and. Yeah, exactly. So what happens is, is then when you're mindful, oh, I'm angry right now, this is probably not the best moment to go to my neighbor's house. Then practicing so that you calm down a little bit, and then you go to your neighbor's house. And you say, that's not cool. When you blow, now I have to deal with all of this. And it's okay, you can be upset. But as opposed to going, you know, going and getting your blower and like yeah. <laughs> blowing it back on his. Yeah. So it's not that you don't do something about it, but you wait. You wait. But if you don't have a practice, it's really hard to wait. There's no spaciousness. You just go over there and you blow everything back on his lawn. <clears throat> Which maybe might be a good thing it to do sometimes. Good for that moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you don't allow yourself to feel your emotion, yeah. would you say that you're not being compassionate to yourself? Yes. The problem is, is that when you start trying to numb out your emotions, you numb out all of them. So if you are trying to numb out the negative emotions you'll end up numbing out also the positive emotions. Numbing is numbing. The numbing process doesn't know what emotions they are. It's just numbing. So that's not something we're trying to train in. So last comment and then we're gonna have lunch. Um, So when we practiced this morning, I had a really hard time with my breath in the beginning. Uh And then when my breath settled, I felt like a overwhelming emotion, mm-hmm. and and had tears, lots of tears, yeah. but no, uh, you know, like I could hear my voice saying, I, "This isn't anything. Uh-huh. Like it's not. Yeah. I'm not happy. I'm not sad. I'm yeah. not angry. Yeah. It's not grief." Yeah. And is that, um, like, am I just? Is it just ignorance? Like de- total detachment? Yeah. Or. I don't know what that is. Not necessarily. I mean, we all the time we have emotions where we don't really know what they are. And then you can watch your mind running around trying to figure out <laughs> what it, what it, you know. But sometimes we just don't know. It's, it's kind of like, I think of that same thing as like when you have a dream and you wake up in the morning and you feel like something really shifted, but you, you have no idea 
it just feels like a tectonic plate just shifted in the right way. And you don't, you can't really explain it. And I think that, that that's actually a helpful way sometimes of having emotions. Because usually our emotions are like bogged down by all of our psychological theories. And um, sometimes they're helpful, but sometimes they don't add anything really. So just keep hanging out with it. And then maybe you might have some insight about that. So, uh, good timing. It's exactly 11.30. So the way the day is structured, we have lunch from 11.30 until 1. So hopefully you have time to eat and swim. I don't know, what else do you do? Jet ski? (laughs) This doesn't seem like a jet skiing group. Um, And then uh, um, I encourage you to have some time outside. And... um, then we'll start again at one o'clock, and we'll go till three, three thirty. Three thirty. Yeah. Uh, so this afternoon we'll do some sitting meditation again. We'll look more at this, various other things. Okay. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Are you allowed to visit?